Thank you, Paul. Thank you for leading us this morning. Good to see you all here and to uh, rejoice with you and to see how God is at work amongst us, individuals, as a church, as a whole, and it's great. And actually, you may not know, but in this country as a whole, church attendance is rising. It has been declining for years and years, but in the last little while, generally, church attendance is rising again. And some say that that's to do with the economic climate, that people are waking up to the fact that material things don't cut it when it comes to the real issues of life. But whatever reason, it's great to see you here and to rejoice together with you. And uh, just to say (coughs) that... um, Paul has already mentioned to us home groups on Wednesday and in the home groups we will be focusing on what we're talking about on Sunday mornings. That is through January we will be. Be a bit different a bit later but in January we're focusing on what we're talking about on Sunday mornings. And uh, uh, I hope you'll want to be there at the home groups. And of course don't forget tonight at Hillview as Paul said to join together with the other folks there and uh, have worship together with them. It's always a great occasion to be able to do that. Now, next Sunday is the 15th, next Sunday, and during that service, we will be praying with and for Julia, Julia Bashford, as she takes up her role as coordinating the children's uh, uh, work and those who are involved in that work. So we'll be praying with her on that occasion. And we shall also be praying with the... um, practical ministry team. Um, They're the people who get things done that nobody else sees them doing. The people who do it behind the scenes and get the place ready before you come and all of that and all the other practical stuff. And we'll be praying with them. It's an exceedingly important job. We're grateful to them for doing it, but we'll be praying with them too on Sunday next. The following Sunday is the 22nd. And then two things will take place. You've already heard that we're having lunch together. But also in that service, that service on 22nd in the morning will be, it'll be what we're referring to as Vision Sunday. Looking to the the coming year, we'll be building on what we talked about in our vision last year um, when we started the year. But this Sunday, it'll be on the 22nd and we'd like everybody to be there for the 22nd. It will be a time of dedication of ourselves to the work that God has called us to. So there are a few things coming up. Now, this month, we are looking at growing in Christ, what it means to grow up into Him. It's the start of the year, and uh, we want to sort of say, what is God saying to us as our focus for the coming year, and uh, how can we take these first few weeks of the year, to focus on the coming months. What is it that we should be doing? And one of the key issues is that we all should be growing up into him. As Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. And that's what we're focusing on. Last week, if you were here, it was a family time, and we talked about Jesus growing up from the time he was a baby at Bethlehem through to the time he became a man, and Joseph and Mary's responsibility in that. But this week, we as adults are thinking of um, growing up into him, and we shall be over the next two weeks as well. So if you've got your Bible, would you please turn to 2 Timothy 
chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and if you haven't bought your Bible, I'd like to borrow a church Bible, Phil is walking around with them now. Two Timothy chapter three. And I didn't look up the page number so somebody can shout it out. Pardon? Eleven eighty seven in the church. Eleven ninety seven in the church Bibles. Eleven ninety seven. Two Timothy chapter three. And we're going to read from verse ten. <clears throat> Paul is writing to this young fellow, Timothy a young church leader based at Ephesus, and he writes this. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we're thinking about this growing up in Christ. I mentioned that that phrase comes from Ephesians 4.15, and it says this in Ephesians 4, We will then be no longer infants, tossed tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him, who is the head, that is Christ. So we're focusing on growing up into him. Now before we take it any further, there are a couple of things that we can say about this growing up into him. First of all, it has nothing to do with your age. We talk about growing up, obviously, with children, and it's obviously something to do with age. As you get older, you grow up. But this particular thought of growing up into Christ is nothing to do with age. So it doesn't matter if you're a younger person or an old person. You may be spiritual and mature and you may be growing in him the same as anyone else. Somebody has once said, and I think it's always always been a challenge to me, you are as spiritual as you want to be. You are as holy as you want to be. Because it's not to do with your age. It's how you respond to God's word. Immaturity spiritually is not the same as immaturity physically. And you can live the whole of your adult life knowing the things of God, going to church, and be thoroughly immature. Jesus spoke 
about uh, being led like a child. So it's not to do with age. Secondly, it's not to do with how much you know. In other words, it's not an academic ability growing up in Christ. There are some great scholars around who know the background of the Bible and the languages of the Bible and the um, theology of the Bible really well, but when you meet them, you know straight away that they're spiritually immature. There are many like that. It's not to do with how much you know, which is good news for some of us who are not very good at learning. (laughs) You can be spiritually mature, whether you're an academic sort and like study, or whether you don't, whether those things come naturally to you or not. Thirdly, it's not to do with finding the latest fad in teaching. There always have been, in the New Testament time, when Paul talked to the Corinthians about Some people say, follow this person. Some people say, follow that person. Some people say, follow another person. And he said, what you need to do is follow Christ. And today, there are all sorts of people who come along with the latest idea, and many of them are very fine believers. But they come along with their teaching, and they have all sorts of things. And it makes no difference whether they come from America, or South America, or wherever they come from, or the God Channel on television. When you find people are getting a big following after them, be very careful. Not that they're wrong, but be very careful of just following the latest fad. Paul speaks about those who gather around them a great number of teachings to say what their itching ears want to hear. And we need to be very careful about that. And then fourthly, it's not talking about finding the latest or the latest headline church either. Because there are always some churches that are on the up and everybody says, oh, let's go to that church. And then somebody, something else happens, you go to another one, comes, oh, let's now go to that one. And there's people switching churches and so on. Not that the churches are wrong. It's not that the churches are doing anything wrong. But it's not, spiritual maturity and spiritual growth is not to do with those things. And we need to be careful about it. Maturity is something else. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that godly teachers are unnecessary or are unhelpful or that being part of a growing, thriving church is irrelevant, or that study is a waste of time, or that experience that comes with age is irrelevant. I'm not saying that at all, but what I am saying is that all of these things may be present and you could remain thoroughly spiritually immature. So what are we talking about when we talk about spiritual maturity? The big question is, how can I grow up into Christ? particularly in these days of increasing pressure, spiritually, socially, academically, what will make me, in God's eyes, mature, rich, pleasing to him, fulfilled day by day in my walk with him? What will enable that to be true for me? Well, it says says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10, it's living a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of good of God. So how do we do that? How do we grow in the knowledge of God? Now, um, I had an email this week. This may seem irrelevant. You'll see the point in a minute. I had an e- email this week, and it was from somebody who'd uh, attached an attachment 
of a document that had been worked on by a committee, and they'd each made, each made changes, tracking changes, if you know Word, on the computer. And he wrote this letter. He, he sent it by, without deleting the changes and so on. He said this, One of the reasons why, when I meet the designers of Word, I'm likely to commit a very serious crime is the track changes function. <laughs> Despite my best efforts to ensure that the document I sent you did not have track changes still on, I fear that it arrived with some of you with the changes visible. Now, I don't know about you, uh, we're looking forward one day to meeting other people in the heavens. Some of them I don't think will be wanting to commit a serious crime, <laughs> but exactly the opposite. We should want to throw our arms around them and thank them for what they've done. And one of them, of course, is the Apostle Paul. And I'm going to thank him, if I meet Paul, I'm going to thank him particularly for what he said in the book of the letters to Timothy, because they have been such a great help in my life. And I guess you've got other passages. You'll want to write uh, to thank Jeremiah or Daniel or some other writer of the Bible. Particularly what Paul has to say to Timothy about growing into maturity. And this is what he says, as I've already read to you. Verse 14, As for you, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it. How from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, he's talking about two main things. It comes in a context when he'd been describing the culture in which he found himself at that time. Now, when you read the context of that passage, if you've got your Bible open, you can just glance down to the first few verses of this chapter. You would say this was written in the 21st century. I mean, listen to this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. Does that ring a bell? Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And Paul says, have nothing to do with them. So the context was the sort of people that we meet day by day, egocentric, money-focused, arrogant, rude, pleasure-seeking. They may call themselves spiritual, but they don't know anything of the power of God. That's exactly what Paul says in those first few verses. So how do you grow in that context? How do you grow up into Christ in that context? Well, two things. First of all, you go back to the basics, and secondly, you get into the Word of God. Let's glance at them. First of all, then, you go back to the basics. If it doesn't come from those other things, it does come from, first of all, going back to the basics. And Paul says, remember the basics that you were taught when you became a believer and look at the lives of those who taught it to you. One of the questions that I've had to answer several, many times in life, and stuff I've done, training and, and, and even writing stuff, is what do you teach a new believer? How do you write a follow-up course? What are the basics that a new believer needs to know? 
We're not going to discuss that here and now, but how, how do you do discipleship? To help someone who's just become a Christian, a little baby in Christ, how do you help them to maturity and so on? And it's interesting when you read the New Testament that Paul was never afraid of frightening new believers. We're sometimes afraid, and we try and say to people, well, now you're a believer, it's going to be lovely. Paul didn't do that. Paul said, now you're a believer, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult. I've read books about becoming a Christian. It says that you're going to be constantly happy. Some even tell you you're going to be wealthy. And you're going to be trouble-free throughout the rest of your life. If you're working, or walking with God, then God's going to make everything fine. So it'll be really wonderful being a believer. Not so, says Paul. Face it early on, he says. Toughen up. Everyone, we've read it here, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's going to be tough. In fact, he says in verse 11, there's going to be endurance, persecutions, sufferings like the ones that I had to face. But he does say, yet through them all, the Lord rescued us. In fact, when they went to Iconium and Lystra and all those places that are mentioned in this passage, it says then they went on their missionary journey, preaching the gospel and leaving believers behind when they went on to the next place. Then they turned round on their missionary journey and went back to those places, saying to those new believers that having become believers, well, let me just make sure I get it exactly right so that you can have it here in front of you. In Acts 14 is how he puts it. He says they... He went back to the Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. In other words, now you're a believer, you're in for it. It's going to be hard, it's going to be tough and be difficult. So the first thing is, notice that it's going to be tough and difficult. Be straight, and that's what Paul is saying here. And going back to the, so it's going back to the basics, right from the beginning. We should know it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult, and there are things that we're going to face. But look at those who taught you the word of God. See how they grew in Christ, etc. That's the first thing. Go back to the basics. Secondly, he says, get into the word of God. This is verses 14 to 16. Get into the word, word of God. Now, we're living in a day when people are trying to stop us reading the Bible. The Times newspaper in London wrote this in an article not long ago. Edinburgh University is to ban Bibles from its students' halls of residence amidst concern that the holy book is discriminatory and makes students of other faiths feel unwelcome. The the move is the result of protests from student associations and is being considered as an effort to pursue a policy of evenly supporting all faiths, a university spokesman said yesterday. So there it is. And everywhere it's being more and more difficult to see the word of God lifted up and used and honored. And of course, that's why when we talk about going back to the word of God, it's not going to be even. It's not going to be easy. And as you read these verses, you can see that the focus on the word of God that Paul brings to Timothy is inescapable. 
One of the things that worries me about the church in the West in particular at this time is the marginalization of the Bible. And it's substituted with lifestyle programs. And we have to be very careful that we don't do that. We're going into 2012 and we as Abbey Church want to make sure that we're focused upon what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches about how we should live and how we should honor him. Centered on what the Word of God says because of what the Word of God speaks about. John Wesley was so different. Um, It's interesting that John Wesley, who was so focused on helping people, I mean, he was the first person that started unemployment offices um, and so on, and a whole lot of other things we won't go into now, but John Wesley said this, I am a creature of a day. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God himself has condescended to teach me that way and he's written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. Let me be a man of one book. That's what we need. That should be our attitude. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who most of you will know, put it this way. It is blessed to eat the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your spirit is flavoured with the words of the Lord so that your blood is bibline and the very essence of the Bible flows from you. Now I don't necessarily mean that you've got to learn the authorised version and speak like a person who lived uh, three cent- four centuries ago. Not that at all. But the truth of the Bible should be filling our hearts and flowing from us. That should be our attitude concerning the Bible. So growth depends on the scriptures. Now Paul outlines the process by which it takes place. First of all, he says it takes hold of our minds. Our minds. Getting into the word of God. Continue, he says, in what you have learned. So that's the first thing. Learn what it says. Again, it's not an academic exercise, but learn what the truth of the scripture is. Timothy, when he wrote this to Timothy, he had only one part of the Bible, one or two parts of the Bible, I suppose. He probably had parts of the Old Testament, but not all of it. He probably had just Matthew and Mark in the New Testament. And he probably had some of Paul's letters, because this letter was the last one that Paul wrote. So He probably had some of Paul's letters. We don't exactly know how many he had, but he didn't have the whole of scriptures, etc. But Paul says, be careful to pay attention to God's word. Continue in what you have learned. He's keen that they should continue. That's why we introduced last year E100, to try and encourage us all to read God's word on a regular basis. And because E100 has come to an end, that's the time to get Scripture Union notes or to get one of the other notes. And Pat will be only too pleased to supply them if you haven't got them. So that we can begin to get into God's Word and continue in it and be strong in it. This is how George Muller put it. George Muller down in Bristol. You remember him? He did so much for particularly children and orphans. But the main thing, the the reason Muller started his children's homes, which looked after nearly 20,000 children, orphan children, the reason he started it was not actually because of the children. 
He said he wanted to start something that would show the power of God and the fact that God is as alive today as he was in the, new, in the Bible days. And he said this, I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word of God and meditation upon it. What is the food of the inner man? Not prayer, but the word of God. And not the simple reading of the word of God so that it only passes through our minds, just as water runs through a pipe, but considering what we read, pondering it, and applying it to our hearts. He was above all things a man of prayer. But he's dared to say in that quote, that even prayer is not as important in that context. It's important that we read and get to know the Bible. And of course, when we do that, we shall want to uh, pray as well. Now, there are two problems with reading the Bible. Well, there are many, but let me mention two. One problem is reading too little. Either because we read it too infrequently, and often we think we know it. Oh, well, I know the story of David and Goliath, or whatever it is, so I won't bother to read that. When actually, when we read it, every time we read it, it, it feeds us and nourishes us, whether we think it does or not. We read too little of it, so that we don't know the flow of Scripture. We don't know how it fits together and what it has to say to us in its big picture. One problem with reading the Bible is reading too little. The other is reading too much. So that we sit down and we read huge chunks of it and we never take a verse and meditate upon it and through that day we repeat it again and again to ourselves. Um, as we're standing at the bus stop, as we're driving our cars, as we're going to the shops, we let that verse flow through our mind again and again. It's like, well, it's, we call it meditation. It's the word in Hebrew for chewing the cud. You know how a cow chews the grass and then swallows it. And when it's got nothing better to do, it brings it up again and chews it again. And then thinks, oh, I'll have another go a bit later. And after 11 in the morning, he says, I'll have that too. And he brings it up again. And he's got several stomachs to do it. Now that's what meditation is. It's letting the word of God come back to our mind so that it flows through every crevice of our mind and our heart being and we say why does that why does Paul use that word why does Isaiah say that how does that fit together? how does it work out in my experience meditating on God's word reading too much it's asking the basic questions you know the person who first translated the Bible from its Hebrew and Greek into English was Miles Coverdale actually he didn't because he didn't know Hebrew and Greek. But he took all of the scholarship around and he brought it all together and he put it into English because he wanted to make a Bible available for English-speaking people. And he said this, It will greatly help you to understand the Scripture if you note not only what is spoken and written, but of whom and to whom and with what words, with what time, where, with what intent, with what circumstances, considering what goes before and what follows. That's good advice. Why is it written this way? How does that apply? How did it apply then? How does it apply now? It's taking God's word, and you can't do that with huge chunks. You need to take parts of the Bible for that. So one problem is sometimes reading too little, sometimes it's reading too much. So as we take God's word, something remarkable happens.
There's a, there's a lovely verse that I've often meditated on. It says this in 1 Corinthians 2. God's secret wisdom. A wisdom that's been hidden that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's an incredible statement. The Bible is destined for your glory. And it's in such a way that even the rulers of the age in which we live don't understand it. Only those who are believers. The believers, the, the, the people of this age are rulers of this age are stupid. They're often very clever, smart people. But believers know something and can grow in, uh, grow in spiritual things from God's word in a way that rulers of this age could not possibly do so. So as you read it, let it take hold of your mind till you begin to think differently. That's what verse 14 is about. As for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you have learned it. So often we read the Bible for secondary reasons. We read it to settle an argument in our mind. We read it because we want to discover some new truth. We read it to be better informed about Christianity, all of which are valid, but they're actually all secondary. The primary reason is, verse 16, to train in righteousness that we may be equipped for every good work. So in other words, as we read God's word, we will think differently. Secondly, it, we will change our focus. Verse 15 says, You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The focus is learning Scripture, allowing it to take hold of our minds, change our behavior, not just so that we know the Bible better, but so that we know the one of whom it speaks better that we come to Christ. The focus of Scripture is not Scripture, but Christ. We're Christians. We're not Bibleians. <laughs> We're Christians. Scripture itself doesn't save us, in that sense, but Christ of which it speaks saves us. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a famous Bible teacher of the last generation, used to say, imagine renting a hotel in a grand resort somewhere, and you hire the a room, and it looks out over the seas and the mountains. And you want to tell somebody how wonderful it all is, so you write to them. And in your write, writing to them, you said, I'm having a wonderful time here. Let me describe it to you. The window I'm looking out of is about four foot high and about six foot wide. The glass in it is about six millimeters thick. I imagine it's hardened glass. I have attached to this... Um, 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 a study that shows the strength of this glass and how it was manufactured. Oh, and by the way, it's coated so that it doesn't absorb too much sunlight and uh, so that the rain doesn't make it dirty every time it rains and the rain runs off it. The glass is held in place by stuff called putty. This is a remarkable stuff that remains movable and soft for a long while before eventually it goes hard. Now, putty is made up of linseed oil and so on and so on uh, and so on. And I have attached also a study about this putty and how the putty is made and how it is applied, etc. Oh, and by the way, it's painted white. And the paint is remarkable paint, the way it covers the woodwork. It's, he said, that's how people study the Bible. 
they talk about what it's like and what it looks like and how it fits together and so on. When actually it's not talking about those things, it's talking about something else. The view has been lost. And we're called to read the scriptures, have studied to know the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So this year, as we study the scriptures together, we should be praying for each other and praying for ourselves that we shall become more and more like Jesus. We should become wise for salvation and grow more and more in him. That's important for us as we start this project, Abbey Project. It's going to be very easy for us to talk about Abbey Project once it gets going. We'll talk about the building, what we're going to do in it, and how it'll function and all that sort of stuff as these things become clearer and become uh, uh, um, uh, much more clear to our minds, etc. But actually, making Jesus know is what we're here for. That's why it's the strapline of our logo, making Jesus known. And we must never forget it. All the other things are important, but they're peripheral to making Jesus known. It's folly to talk about the window when we could be talking about the view. And then finally, it'll not only help us to change our focus, it'll change our behavior too. Change our behavior. One verse that's been a challenge to me is this one. It comes from 2 Corinthians 10. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. How? By taking captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So as thoughts come into our mind, we want to capture those thoughts and make them obedient to the word of God. How can we do that if we don't read it? How can we do that if we haven't learned what it has to say? Just as Timothy learned from his father, for his family, from his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, now he's to apply it. I'd like to recommend that this year we all, and I'm speaking to myself as well, make a conscious effort to learn passages of the Bible off by heart. Do you fancy joining with me in doing that? I, I'm going to have a go at that. Learning some verses off by heart. I mean, I remember that when I was a little child, I was about four. The first verse I ever learned off by heart in a little meeting that I used to go to, a little meeting called Christian Endeavor, which some of you all know about. The little Christian Endeavor. The first verse I learned off by heart was, keep the door of my lips. Keep the door of my lips. And we were told what it meant and so on. And I learned that one off by heart. Then there's others. Prayer meeting, Rosemary quoted a verse. I learned it in the authorized version. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2 verse 10. It's been in my mind over the years. Another one. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Romans 5, verse, uh, 8, verse 2. And one that just more recently, more recent years, has been a challenge to me. Romans 5, verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were committed. 
And getting some of these verses, and I'm going to learn some others, and I hope you'll join me. Getting some of these verses into your heart and mind, it, it helps to make you strong and to grow strong in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you'll begin to behave differently. It will purify your life and change things. And that's why Paul, in this speaking about the Scripture, says it comes to us rebuking us, correcting, training us in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's the power of God's word. Are you? Go on then. Thank you very much. Joshua 1.9, I will be with you wherever you go. Thanks very much, Greg. I guess if we opened it up, we'd be here for the rest of the week. That would be lovely. But uh, we won't do it right now. But thank you very much, Graham. So the power of the Word of God. And as we step into this year, let's make the Word of God central to our thinking, not just the meetings, but to our thinking, our speaking, our learning, so that every thought is brought captive to the Word of God. This week I read the story of Emile Calais. He was a professor in Princeton, Sem uh, Princeton Seminary in the United States. He was born in France during the First World, and, and during the First World War, he was involved in the war, etc. And he was brought up in a thoroughly, a thoroughly worldly, naturalistic, as he called it, environment that did not believe in God at all. And eventually he was shot during the war and injured during the war, and he went to hospital, and there he met a woman that he married. She was one of the nurses, but he married, married her, and they lived in France. But he, w he said when he married her that he would not allow anything to do with religion or the Bible or religious books in the home. But he felt that he needed to have a book that understood him. And so he wrote a book over the years called The Book About Me, in which when he found a little saying or a quote or something that he thought was helpful, he would write it in this leather-bound notebook that he carried with him pretty well all the time. And it was the book that was to be about him, quotations and so on. And he indexed it with red ink and so on so that he could find the right places whenever he wanted to look look into it. Things that had been a help to him, for he wanted to find a book that would help him. But one day, he felt he wanted to turn to it, and he sat down in the square in the town and began to thumb through it, and he thought to himself, I look back over these things that I've collected over the years, this is nonsense. It doesn't help me at all. It doesn't give me any strength at all. And uh, he was terribly disappointed. Instead of speaking to how he find him, found himself, the condition in which he found himself, they just reminded him that man can't do anything. His wife had taken the pram with their little baby and was walking around town. And she entered through a gateway into a courtyard. Didn't know what it was, where she was going, until she got in and she found it was the courtyard to a Huguenot church. And in the corner was a table with an old man writing on it. And she said that she did not know why, but she went up to that old man and says, do you have a Bible in French? And he just didn't say a word. He got up, picked one up, gave it to her, and she took it. 
But as she went out, she said, I was frightened. I didn't know what I could do with it because I couldn't give it to my husband for he'd forbidden me to take any of this stuff home with me until eventually she plucked up enough courage to say that she'd got this book from this man. And he said, let me see it. And he began to read it. He packed up everything that day and went into his study and he read and he read and he read and he read for hours on end. He started with the Gospels and read and read the Bible. And he started to study it. At the end of it, he said, I, I chanced upon the Beatitudes. I read and read and read. Now aloud, with an indescribable warmth surging within me, I could not find words to express my awe and wonder. And suddenly, the realization dawned on me, this is the book that understands me. I continued to read into the night, mostly from the Gospels, and lo and behold, as I looked through them, the one of whom they spoke and the one of who spoke to me and acted in them became alive to me. The providential circumstances amid which the book had found, found me now made it clear that while it seemed absurd to speak of a book understanding a man, this could be said of the Bible because its pages were animated by the presence of the living God and the power of his mighty acts. To this God I prayed that night, and the God who answered was the same God of whom it was spoken in the book. And ever afterwards he said, this is the book that understands me. And it changed his life. He became a professor of theology. As we read the Bible, it will change us, and we won't be changed unless we read it. So let's make sure that this year we put the Bible as number one priority in our lives. Let's pray together.